0: So it seems to me that most of us, if not all of us, are born with this uh, disposition toward a, uh, what I'm going to call a transactional social economic, uh, a transactionalism. What I mean by that is if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours and vice versa, uh, this kind of thing where we take our own gifts, either uh, that we've been born with, or gifts that we've earned over time, and we use them as leverage in our various relationships. You know, this is, uh, it's common. You can just start thinking of different relationships that you might have, and you might see how it fits naturally. Uh, and in some, some places, it, it kind of makes sense and isn't necessarily a bad thing, this transactionalism fits in business really well, right? We go into this business agreement and we make a contract and you have your end of the deal and I have my end of the deal and we use uh, different things to leverage our way. Uh, you see it very often in politics. You know, If you endorse me, I'll do this for you. Uh, strangely, it can get into uh, unfit places. You might see it in marriages I'll do this for you if you do this for me, uh, or maybe parent-child relationships. Hey, mom, if, if I take out the trash, will you take me to the mall? And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. And what we, I think, end up doing is through repetition of this transactional-ism, we form a habit of getting into the mindset of always making transactions, always using what we have to leverage other people to do things that are in our favor. And as we we form this habit, so often we take that habit to our relationship with God. Maybe you've heard uh, again and again things like maybe the example would be you're on a raft and you say, Lord, Lord, If you save me, then I'll commit myself to you. It's this transactionalism that we bring to our relationship with God, and it creeps in all over the place. And I think what it does is it it shows a major spiritual deficiency. Um, It can cause people to think things like they can earn God's favor. If I do enough then God will love me. And you're using your works to leverage yourself into a position of God's love for you. Or you could kind of flip that around and go the opposite direction and say, I've already done this much. How could God not love me? And again, you're doing the exact same thing, but in the reverse. And fundamentally opposed to this deficient approach to uh, finding favor with God, to having a relationship with God, is what Paul brings to us here in this text. See, this transactionalism is cutting against what the Bible has to say about grace, a grace-based relationship. He removes this transactional social economic, either between man and man or between God and God, by showing us that grace actually replaces it in the life of the Christian. See, leveraging so often disrupts and destroys relationships. But grace brings healing. Uh, Maybe as an example, um, I've been out to dinner sometimes with people, and you say something like, oh, I'll pay for the bill and then they say something like oh, but but last time you paid for the bill and then two times before that I paid for the bill and they have this whole like tally of all the different interactions that you've had and they come to the conclusion that they should pay a dollar 50 of the bill and that that you should pay the rest and it's just this tab system that really disrupts and destroys because it's this it's coming from this mindset of a transactional disposition. The other option is grace. Say, you know, God's given me so much. Why wouldn't I just go ahead and pay for your meal or what have you? You know, Paul comes in when we're playing this game of transactional works, and he inserts grace. Um, And what we'll see tonight is that God's powerful love, God's powerful love drives us to be those who live grace-shaped lives. So you have the love of God, and it puts us from not a, a state of, of a fallen nature, but it restores us in Christ Jesus and causes us to be people who have received grace, and then that grace then changes the way that we live, and we deal with each other gracefully. So first, what we're going to look at here in Ephesians 2 is that you and I are born with a miserable condition. We're born with a miserable condition. See, As Paul's moving through this section, he's doing this thing where he's swapping between you and me and you and me as he's writing this epistle. And what I hope we'll see in a second is that when he's changing from you to me to you to me, what he's doing is he's actually drawing a circle with these pronouns around Jews and Gentiles. You know, sometimes the seemingly good deeds of men and women can cause us to think that they might uh, even uh, not have the same spiritually dead condition that Paul describes in Ephesians 2. Uh, Back in 2016, uh, I was in Norway for a little while with Scott Nelson. And I've done an okay amount of traveling. Maybe you've gone somewhere um, that I haven't gone. But the Norwegian people are probably the nicest people that I've ever met. Um, We got off on the wrong ferry stop and we started talking to a guy trying to figure out our way and he just like he's like, well I'll just hop on my boat. I'll just I'll boat you over there. And other times they're like giving us free rides as we're like we're backpackers all dirty and muddy and, and they're like, no, just hop in my brand new Audi. It's oh I'll get it I'll get it clean. And so often we can see things like that and make an assumption that their spiritual condition isn't what it actually is. You see, by nature, even the very seemingly good things that men and women do are sin. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Or in Romans fourteen. 23, he says, whatever is not from faith is sin. You see, a man could spend his entire life in philanthropic endeavors serving man, woman, and child, and if it's not done in faith to glorify God, it's sin. Why is this? Well, it's because of this sin nature that we've all been born into. Rather, uh, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, your problem isn't necessarily those external things that you do, but that you do them as they're rooted and flowing from this nature problem. just as the others. But he's saying, he's, he's going through with these different pronouns. You once walked Gentiles, but then he turns around and says, we also conducted ourselves in a fleshly way. And he's, he's going back and forth and he's saying, Gentiles, by their nature, they're prone to sin, prone uh, to love sin and can only sin. But the problem is also for the Jews that because of the sin nature inherited by Adam, they also are prone and can only sin naturally. And from this you can remember the warning God gave in the garden, in the day that you eat of this, you shall surely die. And they surely did die. Or you might remember the words of our shorter catechism, the sinfulness of that estate to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness, and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin. You might say, it can't be. Not, not for everybody. But then you turn to Psalm 51, and David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You see, this is a problem that we all deal with, Jew and Gentile, you and me. Gentiles, according to the, the lure of this world and the forces of Satan, Jews with this lust of the flesh. But then at the end, he says, just as the others. And what he's saying is we Jews were just like the Gentiles as well in terms of being given to the powers of the world and the flesh and the evil one. And what he's saying is there's this fundamental problem. You have a sin nature and from that you are unable to please God, naturally speaking. What he's saying is whatever you do, if it comes merely from your own efforts, you will never get a step closer into a right relationship with God because your nature is that of deadness. You know, I, I don't think we see death enough in, in the West. Um, I, I Honestly, I couldn't tell you what a rotting corpse smells like. I couldn't. Um, I have done some planting, and if a rotting corpse smells anything like a rotting potato that's sat in the ground for a long time, uh, you know like how foul something that's rotting can be. I think what Paul is saying is that by nature, you and I are rotting, dead, dead in your sins, dead in trespasses, which leaves us to a, in a place where it's like, okay, well, now we can't even use our works because our, our our best works are filthy rags. How can we earn a place before God, a place of favor, when we look at ourselves and Just look at your heart for a little while. Apart from the grace of God, what could you possibly do to please him? Which means Paul, looking to Jew and Gentile, he rules out from the beginning in these first three verses any possibility of earning favor with God by your own works. But um, you go back to verse 1 and he says, you he made alive. So he's already started with a promise, but he's he's building this uh, foundational theological understanding of the condition of man to where we could get to the point where we say, "Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul," and that leads us to Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. You see, as we look to our own sin nature. It drives us, before we even get to grace, it drives us to an understanding that if we are to be saved, it can only be by grace. Which brings us to the the second thing that Paul brings up: it's that God saves us out of his love from this miserable condition. God saves us from this miserable condition. It says in verse 4, but God, which is the answer. When we look at our nature and we say, okay, well, what's the answer to this natural problem of this sin nature? And on top of that nature, I've added my own sins. And Paul's answer is, but God, which uh, Martin Lloyd Jones preached a whole sermon on, but God. I'm not going to try to do that tonight. Uh, But it's the answer. You see, if, if Paul didn't write but God right here, the, the epistle would be over. It would it would leave us in hopelessness if not for God. But God, because of his love, his love brings us to an un- understanding of the richness of his mercy. And because of his he is rich in mercy, it brings us to this powerful. Sin-removing grace. But God, who is rich in mercy, verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. What sort of love? It's a love for enemies. The God of all life, the God who is light, and in him there is no darkness, Loves those who are dead before you have even an ability to turn to God. That's what sort of love our God displays. You see, when we try to so often operate in this transactionalism, God approaches us with grace. When we try to leverage things, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, God says... You can't do anything. We can't add to God. We we can't make him more glorious than he already is. He doesn't need any of us, yet he has decided to enter into a relationship with us and show us his own grace. And the result of this is life. The result of God's grace is life, which one means grace is something... Uh, more than just a favorable disposition. It's a favorable disposition that comes with the backing of who God is, full power, and what it does is it revives the soul. It makes you a living person. It gives you life and the good life and the abundant life, which is life raised with Christ. And Paul, again, as we've seen um, the last couple weeks, he, he brings us up into heaven, Uh, In verse uh, 5, he says, even when we are dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And then he raises us here. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly place in Christ Jesus. He brings us up into heaven by this new estate that we've been brought into, this estate of salvation. See, Paul knows of sin and grace because he was once a a slave to sin, but he has been set free in Christ. Therefore, his prayer, his teaching, his life is about showing that same liberty to others, which for us tells us two things. One, we should be the type of Christians that are always wanting to tell others about the liberty found in Christ. Those who are bound to sin are set free and made alive in Christ. Number two, what we need to consider is that Christian liberty, when we talk about Christian liberty, it's far greater than the liberty to smoke tobacco or drink alcohol. Christian liberty, when you hear Christian liberty, the first thing that should come to your mind is I have been set free in Christ. I've been given life and the good life and the abundant life because of the work of God in my life. And what he does by this is he raises us as Christ was raised and he actually spiritually brings us up to sit with Christ in heaven. That we are raised to the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you realize that tonight we sit next to Christ Jesus as he sits in heaven? Which, for, for me, and I think for all of us, we need to consider this. That when we enter into this transactionalism, we're doing it as if sitting next to Christ who brought us a grace from his own work. When we start to get, and, and we, I think we all kind of get back into that, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours. Would we do that before the Christ that has given himself all the way to death? You see, we've received grace. And at this point, now we can give graciously to one another. And what he does is he says in uh, verse 8, or sorry, in verse 7, that uh, the reason that he raised us, and he sits us in the heavenly places with Christ, is that in the age to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see, what you have now is, now you have a new commission. You've been made a person who displays the love of Christ through the words that you say, through the way that you act as you sit, in session with Christ Jesus and the heavenlies, yet live here on earth. To a point where we could say things like, I've received grace. I've received grace. I don't have to leverage things against you. I've received grace and I can respond to you graciously. Because God has given to me, I freely give to you. I give my time, I give my prayers. I give my words and I give my service to you. Which brings us to this uh, third point, which is that God saves us for a new living. He saves us to live a new way. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast, So what he's doing here is he's setting it up. He's saying it's not of you. God has graciously entered into your life. He's he's extended grace to you, and he's given you this faith, which is a gift. It's not something from you. It's given by God. But notice Paul has a trajectory here, saying it's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then he gets to verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them you see the the whole point of inserting works here is to say that actually works are really important in the life of a christian is they don't save they don't make you right with god only christ does only christ does only christ does but as james says uh, faith without works is dead He's saying, you've been raised to this new life where you are utterly concerned about serving one another because you have been served. This new nature produces a new living. And yes, we can't, we can't add to what God has done. Um, I I was watching this video a, a few months ago on YouTube. Um, I'm interested in uh, our, the... the uh, uh, camper van people get these forty cono lines and they sh- strip them out and um, I was watching this video where a guy's like oh here's my my camper van and I, uh, I I put in this this refrigerator well well actually my dad put in this refrigerator and he's like and and I built this bed well actually my my dad built this bed but we added this fan to the top to keep it well actually it was all my dad and by the end of the video I realized that his dad probably didn't want him living at home anymore because his dad had done everything everything and what was interesting was he had this impulse to insert himself and I think we often have an impulse to insert ourselves into the gracious work of God but let it never be so God freely saves. God is the one that graciously deals with Adam's fallen race and brings us into this new living. But then apart from that, apart from uh, that receiving of the salvation, God calls us to be those who work, those who labor, those who love the law, love to fill the law, love to do good works. You know, I've heard... Uh, things like, uh, if, if you have a heart for service, we've got this ministry for you. Uh, there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't have a heart for service. I'm serious. Being a Christian means you're a person who loves to do good works. That's what you were created for. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. It's your calling. It's what you're called to do as a Christian. Not saved by your works, but certainly one who labors for good works because that's what you've been created to do. This new creation, it's part of the good life. You know, I'm, it seems like there's so many Christians who are spiritually in a coma, you know what I mean by that like they're they say they believe and then you look at their lives and there's zero activity they profess that they're alive but there's there's no movement in their lives there there's no activity and I I would pray that the spirit would work in our land in Christians that there would be this call to to service to good works to not be spiritually comatose but to be those who are living called to be alive grace has been received God has dealt graciously with us, and now we are those who live. And the way that we live is by responding to God's love and giving love to him in times like this in worship and giving love to our neighbors by being those who are active in good doing. And what it does is it removes that transactional ism. We get to the point where we say we've received from Christ. And then when we go to serve our neighbors, we're not asking for anything in return. We're those who serve our neighbors because God has created us to be good doers, to be those created for good works. And we use this to to come out and we, and we bring it to the world. We bring it to our workplaces. We bring it to our families. We bring it to our church. We bring it all over the place that God has graciously dealt with me, therefore I will graciously deal with you. And we do it out of a love for the God who first loved us. And that's it. It's simple. That's it. God has loved us. Therefore, we love others. Can we try to apply this to our lives? Let's pray and ask that the Lord would help us to that end. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus Christ is who he is, that he is our God and our Savior and our Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would be those who really live, active Christians. That we would be those who exercise our faith. That's truly a gift, but we exercise it um, unto faithfulness. uh, To turn to the Lord in worship, but also to turn to neighbor in uh, good works and kindness and love toward one another. And we recognize, Lord, that um, so often um, our efforts are feeble. And even when we make a great effort, uh, Lord, we often uh, execute it poorly. But, Lord, we pray that you would deal graciously with us, uh, that you would help us to learn and become skillful Christians in the way that we uh, talk about you and the way that we uh, worship you and the way that we address one another in love. We love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we thank you for first loving us even when we were dead. We praise you, our almighty God. In Christ's name, amen.